Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. A trigger warning. This episode includes discussion of a suicide attempt, as well as suicidal ideation. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am actually podcasting today from health 2019. It's health event 2019 that's being held in Las Vegas. A lot of you would have seen me posting about it um, all over social. It's where I collected my WeGo Health Award. And I'm here with another WeGo Health Award winner, Natasha Tracy, who's a mental health writer, speaker, and author. Uh, she runs the blog Bipolar Burble. So Natasha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's such a pleasure having you here. And it's been so nice meeting you and getting to know everyone in the awards categories much better over the last couple of days. So why don't we start at the very beginning? When and how did you first realize that you had some kind of invisible condition going on? Yeah, that's a really interesting question <laughs> because um, I think I knew something was wrong yeah. when I was about 13. Um, mm. But when you're 13, you don't really know what wrong is. You don't know what that looks like. You don't know what it might be. Mm. And of course, when you're 13, everybody blames it on the fact that you're 13. So nobody really listens to you. Um, and even the people who did listen to me weren't helpful. Mm. So it wasn't until I was 19 that I actually got help for myself. And mm. so in my particular case, I have bipolar disorder. And so um, the first thing I did was I actually went to a counselor, so a therapist, um, mm -hmm. at university because I was at university at the time. And, um, I, I basically cried out, you know, what had happened, what was happening to me, used up an entire box of tissues. And then, um, you know, the therapist looked at me and he said, you need to see a doctor. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to see a doctor because I was actually very anti-psychiatry. But at that point in my life, things were so broken and I was so broken that I was willing to try it even though I was psychologically against it. Interesting. So you've really sort of experienced a sea change in terms of treatment because of your experiences, which we, I'm sure we will get into. And I wanted to mention before we go any further as well, there may be a slight pause at some, at one point in a couple of minutes from now, um, because you've got a situation with a magnet. Can you tell us about that? This is one of the treatments that's been used for your bipolar disorder, for your depression, correct? That's correct. Yes. So one of the treatment options um, that few people have heard of actually is called vagal nerve stimulation, and it's just shortened to VNS. And vagal nerve stimulation involves implanting a computer in your chest. It's amazing to me. Oh, it's amazing to me. Um, <laughs> and then leads, wire leads go from that computer and they wrap around your vagal nerve. Wow. So then that computer emits an, um, an electrical impulse mm -hmm. every so often. So for me, it's every hour. 
and um, that electrical impulse stays on for a certain number of seconds. So for me, it's about 28. And it does that every hour, like for the rest of your life, basically, until the battery runs out. Wow. (laughs) And that's how it works. So the issue for me is that when it actually does go off, um, my voice cuts out. And so because of that, I carry around a magnet um, so that if something goes wrong or I need my voice, I can put the magnet over top of the computer and it instantaneously turns off the electrical impulse. That's so incredible. Um, the advances in technology for treating something like depression, it's a, it's a very exciting treatment and idea, I really think. So um, we're going to get into all of this. Tell us what steps you actually took to control your health once you spoke to this first doctor when you were in college who said, go see a psychiatrist. How did it all roll out from there? It's so complicated, I guess, because at the time, I knew nothing about mm. um, depression or bipolar disorder. I only knew what I had read online. I had done copious amounts of research um, before seeing a psychiatrist. And that's how basically I knew I had bipolar disorder. But the doctor disagreed, of course. Mm. Um, the doctor said that I had a case of minor depression. Now, so this is, you had a, like a psychi- psychologist at your college say, go see a doctor who knew what was up, and then you went to see the doctor, and they sort of denied what was going on. That's pretty much what happened, yeah. I mean, doctors all have their own ways of looking at the situation, and, you know, um, I for me, in my particular case, I was at university, and I was still functioning. Mm. So I guess to him, that meant that the depression had to be minor. Mm. And also, I have something called bipolar type 2. And in bipolar type 2, you experience hypomanias and not manias. Hypomanias are um, less uh, less up than manias. They're harder to spot, mm. and often they are missed, especially at that time. So this was 20 years ago. Especially at that time, doctors were not screening properly for bipolar 2. Right. And so even though I knew I had it, he just... He, he wasn't interested in my opinion on that. Right. Well, that's a, that's a familiar story, isn't that's it? That's a familiar story, I'm sure, for many. Yeah. Um, and so even though I knew that he was wrong, you know, I was so tired and I was so worn down from having to try to survive every yeah. single day that I had not one shred of energy left in me mm-hmm. to stand up to this authority figure. Yeah. So when he said minor depression, I just said okay. Right. And then what happened after that? Well, initially he did put me on antidepressants um, and they were horrible. Mm. Um, they messed with my my stomach and my intestines and gave me a headache and dry throat, like a lot yeah. of very similar things that people experience and certainly were not helpful in, in any way. Mm. All right, so we've just got the magnet going. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're so welcome. That was really cool. So basically, Natasha just sort of signaled to me and was like, oh, hey, it's happening now. Grabbed her magnet, put it over the device, and we're good to go. That's right. Amazing. All right, well, keep going. <laughs> so um, so we went through several rounds of antidepressants at that time, um, and none of them were helpful to me and made me quite physically very sick. Mm-hmm. And of course, it is the case now, we do now understand that antidepressants tend to make bipolar worse. They don't, it doesn't tend to make it better. Mm. So, um, what ended up happening was about a year after I started seeing that individual for treatment, he went on vacation. And oh, that's so, convenient. <laughs> yeah. So, um, the person who replaced him while he was on vacation 
um, reassessed me, I guess you could say. And he did believe me mm. that I had bipolar disorder. Oh, that's wonderful. Was it like a younger doctor too? It was not actually, but it was a doctor who was very familiar with difficult to treat cases. Mm. And so, um, he was more, um, interested in looking for signs that were harder to spot, wow. which is what you want to do in a harder to treat case. Cause obviously you're missing something mm-hmm. and you need to know what you're missing. And he was willing to basically look at that. Yeah. So at that point we started going through um, the bipolar medications and they also were extremely difficult for me to take. Sure. Um, a lot as, of nasty side effects with a lot of these medications. A lot of really nasty ones for sure. And it just turns out that I'm really sensitive to these types of medications. Mm-hmm. And so even on a very low dose, I, I would get a lot of side effects. And so I could never get on a dose that was high enough to be effective for me. Mm-hmm. And so what ended up happening was um, after he had been treating me for about a year... I went in and I spoke to him one day and um, he just threw his hands in the air and he said, I can't help you. You're no longer my patient. Oh, man. That's really helpful. Yeah, it's super great. <laughs> I mean, on a certain level, at least he recognized his limits, right? That like he could no longer be of use to you. But on another, as a patient, to be left behind like a doctor, by a doctor like that is, that's got to be a blow. It was devastating for yeah. me. Now, I had been seeing the same counselor all that time um, when I had been going through all of that. So I still had that person to continue to see. Um, but literally, that psychiatrist didn't even give me a referral. Mm. He just said, you're done. And um, it was, yeah, um, certainly that could have cost me my life, certainly. Yeah. Um, but as happens, um, I did see that therapist the whole time. And what he saw was when I got off medications, of course, I just got worse and worse. Mm. This is to be expected, right? right? You're doing very badly on medication. You're only going to do worse off of medication. right? And so basically over a six-month period, I did just get worse and worse until the point where he said to me, if you want to survive, you need to go back to your doctor. Mm, right. So did you go back to the same practice or did you find a different doctor at that point? So at the time, I was still at university, and so I was going to university health services. So mm-hmm. it's not like there are a lot of options. Right. So he was kind of the guy. Right, right. right. Okay. Um, or I could go back to the guy who didn't think I had bipolar. Like, right. Those are my great options, right? Yeah. Um, so I did go back to see him, and, you know, he said something really funny to me, or not funny to me, and he said, oh, you know, I probably shouldn't have done that. I was kind of spring cleaning my clients and you just kind of got caught up in that. Oh, wow. That's really negligent. Yeah. Thank you. That's fantastic. Yes. I'm so glad. Thanks <laughs> yeah. for telling me that. And thanks for the honesty. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for the honesty. That's great. It's really great to know I'm just a number and not a, a whole person to you. Thank you. Wow. So did you have to continue to see this guy then even after he made the spring cleaning comment? I did. I wow. did continue to see him. And honestly, he was a really nice guy. He just... He had some few issues, let's say. Yeah. Um, and Perhaps I will, his own mental health issues. <laughs> what I will say about this particular individual is that he did then find the treatment that worked. Mm. What basically happened was I had gone through all of the bipolar medications. And so what he said was, there's a medication over here that's not being used to treat bipolar disorder, but that we think might be effective. So why mm. don't you just take that? Yeah. And so it was basically a shot in the dark. It was a total guess on his part. Mm-hmm. And it was because he was up to date with the with the research that he even knew that. Um, and magically, 
that was the medication that actually started to give me my life back. That's amazing. So what was the experience like? How did it feel when you got on this medication and you knew it was working? It's really funny. So um, when your brain starts to change from its really dysfunctional state mm. of severe depression and then moving on to something that's healthier you don't actually notice it necessarily at the beginning mm. because things are so, the changes are so small. Sure. The things are so slight. You know, you might smile or you might think a more positive thought or something like that, but there, there's such tiny gradual things that you don't put it together for a while. Yeah. And so for me, what happened was actually a big deal, which I was walking through the student union building um, when this was happening to me. So just as I was starting to feel better, but not recognizing that's what was happening yet. Mm. And um, the skydiving club was there. Mm. And so I said, you know, I've always wanted to do one. I'm going <laughs> to go do a skydive. And um, I love that your university had a skydiving club. <laughs> oh, it's the best. It's the best. It's amazing. Um, so I went up and I, you know, stood in front of the guy and he said, don't you have any questions? And I said, do I get to jump out of a plane? <laughs> he said, yes. I said, that's all I need to know. <laughs> so that's when you knew that things were on the up and up because you were willing to say yes to new experiences and sort it was, of open your mind to things. Yeah, because what ended up happening is not only did I do a skydive, but I actually became a skydiver. I oh, did, wow. I did 150. So. That's amazing. Wow. That's, and especially for someone who's been to the low lows that you've been through, right? Yeah. To like have that, that real high of, of jumping out of a plane and to have that be a really a part of who you are now is it's a really nice contrast, isn't it? It's a really life affirming thing. You know, a skydiver might say to you, for example, you jump out of the plane, you have now killed yourself mm. unless you take evasive action, which means that every single time you jump out of a plane and you survive, you have reaffirmed your life. Yeah, I think that's really lovely. So um, it sounds like you were really acting as your own advocate along the way and that maybe that the, the sort of school psychologist helped you a little bit here and there. But did you discover that you needed a personal advocate at any point in this journey to health? And and who is that, if so? I think the answer to your question is yes, I needed one. And no, I didn't have one. <laughs> also a familiar story. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, when a doctor, when I, when I fundamentally disagreed with my diagnosis, I needed an advocate but didn't have one. Right. You know, when my doctor left me, I needed an advocate but didn't have one. You know, when you're so sick, you're not capable of taking the actions that you really should be taking yeah. in those scenarios, you know, finding alternatives, finding a different doctor, taking the steps forward that you need to get better, but you're so sick that you can't. Mm -hmm. And so that's where an advocate would have come in, but I didn't have anyone. Wow. So... You've become your own advocate over yes. the years. What has that looked like for you? And, and has it changed your relationship to yourself in terms of a, a sense of empowerment um, or control that you've regained, particularly since you've found yourself on the right medications that have improved your health? So I think what's happened for me is I've spent so much time... Um, researching bipolar disorder and wrote a book about bipolar disorder and depression. Tell us the name of the book. It's called Lost Marbles, mm -hmm. Insights into My Life with Depression and Bipolar. And we will link to it. 
on the episode, on the episode page. So there you go. (laughs) Thank you very much. Of course. Um, but I, you know, I put all this effort into learning about bipolar disorder and depression. And in fact, in that book, there's even, um, an algorithm for treatment, right? So how to treat your bipolar when you don't know what to do, you flip to the algorithm and say, okay, I did this and this this is the next thing to try. Oh, that's so useful for Um, patients. It's so empowering for people because then they can walk into their doctor's office and say, what do you think about this? Mm. Because they actually have a this to suggest, right? Yeah, yeah. Because that is one of the problems is maybe you want to advocate for yourself, but you don't know how to do that. Sure. That's a skill. And nobody, nobody, very few people in the world have 10 years to learn about bipolar disorder like I did. Yeah. Um. So, you need to, you know, find these tools that can help you move forward. And so what I've done is use the research and use my knowledge yeah. to become more of a peer with my doctors. Yeah. And I don't know how they feel about that, but I will tell you that I feel really good about it. Um, mm-hmm. I feel really good about walking into my doctor's office and knowing what he knows. Yeah. You've really taken control of your care in that way. So can you tell us what a typical day looks like for you as you're managing symptoms? Because surely you're still coming across things where you have to sort of use perhaps CBT techniques or something to sort of stop and and realign your thoughts. How does that look on a day-to-day basis for you? So because I've been doing this for so long, right? More than two decades. It's like breathing to me, right? It's like blinking. You just do it. So did you you hear that, guys? It It can be like breathing. Like it can be easy. And that's really important for people to hear. I I do. uh, Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you learn a skill in CBT or DBT, whatever, however you learn your skills, it takes so much effort and time to stop and think and apply a skill. And then you think, I'm not going to have that effort in me every minute of every day for the rest of my life. But you will. It's just that um, you'll find that it becomes much easier. So there are certain skills that I personally rely on that I find particularly useful. So like um, it's it's sort of like something like re- like reframing is really important. The mm-hmm. ability to reframe something, right? Absolutely. So um, something bad happens to you and you can take a look at it and just say, you know, you, like for example, for me, my depression tends to look at the worst case scenario. Yeah. So you miss the bus. Let's just say my depression says to me, oh, my God, I'm such a loser. I can't believe I was late out of my apartment this morning that I could have missed the bus. And obviously the bus driver hates me and the rest of the people are mad at me. And I I could do that because Mm. depression wants me to think that. But I don't want to think that. So um, it's really important to take a step back and say, I missed the bus. Mm -hmm. There's not actually a value judgment there. It's just that I missed the bus. Period. Right. Right. And so um, I've I've gone and I, instead of looking at it in this rain cloud sort of fashion, I've tried to apply logic, which is something that I do all the time. I've written about it as well, which is applying logic to a situation because depression and illness in general by its nature is illogical. Right. It's interesting, too, because the way that you're talking about depression that I really like is that you're talking about it as something separate from you, that it's it's not who you are, but it's perhaps this dark rain cloud, right? That's like over your head and you can sort of put up your umbrella. And I really like the idea that it is something that you can control because it's something that's outside of your body in that sense. And that could be a very useful technique for other people who are listening, I'm sure too. Yeah. So what I tell people and what I've written about is there's a separation between the brain and the mind Mm. and the brain has the illness and is sick. It is an organ. It functions like your liver or anything else. You don't have control over your liver and you don't have control over your brain, period. 
But you, yourself, your personality and who you Mm. are, you live in your mind and you are not sick. You are a beautiful creature living and existing on this planet. So what you do as a separate individual is you fight the brain, which is ill. That's what you do. And that's, for me, how I delineate things. Yeah, I really like that. And I think it's a really clear way of visualizing, again, that separation from self. That, like, these experiences, these negative experiences, these negative feelings and thoughts do not make who you are. That your value judgment is actually so much greater than that, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So aside from the experiences early on with that doctor who spring cleaned you and (laughs) (laughs) initially wanted to deny the existence of your illness in the first place, have you been confronted and forced to justify the fact that you did have an illness that other people couldn't see in other situations? Actually, yes. Mm. Um, you know, I've, I've, So I've had a number of doctors, okay? And some of them have been great. And I don't want to suggest that there aren't great doctors because certainly they there are. The really Um, good ones, they really, I mean, most doctors care. (laughs) They do. They care and they want you to get better. That's absolutely the case, right? And I think it's important to remember that. The issue is that bad doctors are so bad. Yeah. Um, And so in my case... um, I was living in the States for a period of time, and then I moved back to Canada. If you haven't been able to tell yet, Natasha is Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I haven't said a boot. (laughs) Not quite. (laughs) So I moved back to Canada, and I had to go through a process to get a psychiatrist at that at that time. Mm. And so part of that is an in-person evaluation to ensure that a psychiatrist is the right um, method of help for you. Mm. So a psychiatrist did an in-person evaluation with me. And at this point I had been in treatment for like about, I don't know, 15 years, I guess. And so I had had virtually every treatment you can possibly think of and was extremely, extremely sick. I was extremely, extremely depressed, suicidal. I was, I mean, I was nothing. I, I was yeah. I was slogging through life, barely able to make it to the appointment. Well, and this is also an important point, right? Um, just to know that, like, yes, you found the drugs that were working for you, you know, years and years prior to this, but that there can still be dips, and that you have to sort of keep that that eye out and make sure that you're staying on top of your symptoms, don't you? And be and working with your team to make sure you can get better. A hundred percent. So it's very common in bipolar disorder for medications to just stop working. Mm. Um, It's called tolerance. We don't know why it happens, but we know that it does. And it will happen for the majority of people with bipolar disorder, although not everyone. Mm. And so in that case, that's what had happened to me. And I had already gone through every medication, every combination. I had been through electroconvulsive therapy. I had had vagal nerve stimulation therapy. I'd had every kind of psychotherapy Mm. and I was still in this place. And so basically this really horrible doctor um, asked me these questions with her head down, not looking at me, writing longhand on a piece of paper. And at the end of that, she looked at me and she said, we can't help you. You're not going to be a patient here. Gosh, you've had that said to you by doctors two times too many, if not more. Yeah. So, you know, she, um, she said to me, you've had every treatment and they've all failed. What's the point in you having a doctor? Mm. Which is, that's literally, that's your job. (laughs) That's the most horrific thing I think you can say to a person, which is give up hope now. Mm. That's what she said to me. And so, um, that, you know, 
that was it, right? And she, I actually had to beg her to fill 14 days worth of prescriptions for me because mm. she wasn't even willing to do that. I had to basically beg her to do that. Wow. And I left her office with 14 days worth of medication and nothing else. I was bawling my eyes out when I left. Yes. And, um, I saw an old, my old psychiatrist, a different psychiatrist that I used to see and in the hallway on the way out. And I literally, was crying and I took him by the arm and I said, please help me. Good for you. That's a brave thing to do. And I then went home and eventually a couple of weeks later, I did attempt suicide because wow. there was absolutely no reason for me to keep going if I couldn't get help. So there's a great example of a clinician denying the existence of an illness, which actually led you to such a dark place that you might not even have been here. This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to Uninvisible Pod, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R labs.com, enter code INVISIBLE30, that's INVISIBLE30 at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. So how did you come back out of that? So suicide is such a toughy. I, I know. Wait, we, I'm, I'm this underplaying is, this. Um, I, yes. I mean, this is, this has also come up throughout the course of the conference, right? I mean, you even mentioned yesterday on, um, when we were in a panel discussion, you know, even uses of the word suicide, um, and things like that. So I, it, it is such a delicate subject. Yes. Um, but obviously a very big one because a huge percentage of the population of people with bipolar disorder and depression do end up Taking Dying. their own lives. Yeah. Exactly. And I very easily could have that day. Yeah. Um, and I, I won't get into specifics, but I, what I will say is it was basically luck mm. that I didn't die that day. And what I ended up waking up on my kitchen floor. Um, and so no one found you. No, uh, wow. no one found me. Like I said, it was luck that yeah. I survived. Um, and I realized literally as I was lying there, that doctor was wrong. <laughs> like I literally had a light bulb moment that should have really been obvious to anyone, but wasn't obvious to me because I, I was so yeah. sick. But again, you you are also like not only did we downplay suicide before, right? But like you're downplaying your own strength in this too, because I think to have that light bulb moment, not everyone is lucky enough to have that too, right? Yep. And the right. fact that whatever it was, whether it was just your inner strength or whether it was because of your experience with therapy in the past and the way that you've been able to readjust your thinking, you were able to realize that the value judgment was not on you in this case. That's right. Exactly. It wasn't. She was wrong. And yeah. that was the important thing to remember. She was wrong. I needed help. And that's what I needed to get better. And the, the way I got it was to work around her. And of course, if I'd had an advocate, hopefully that advocate would have done that exact thing, which is work around the woman who is crazy and wrong. Mm. Um, 
and so, and who is like literally blocking the way for you literally blocking the way of my survival right and, she's literally yeah. going theoretically going to cost me my life you work around that person yeah that is what you do and um and that is what I did. I went around her through um, my family doctor and my family doctor made a personal phone call. So she actually personally made a phone call to the man whose arm that I touched mm. when I was leaving the hospital that day and asked if he would take me on as a patient. Right. And the fact of the matter is he wasn't taking on patients. Mm. Um, he didn't have to take me on. You know, the system said I was broken mm. and the system said I couldn't be fixed. But he agreed to take me on as a patient anyway. And I have never been more thankful for a kindness in my life. Yeah. Well, and in your life, literally, because this has saved your life. Literally. Yeah. And we'd also talked a little bit before we started recording about um, the fact that you've now uh, been a patient within the U.S. and Canadian health systems. So do you think that this experience uh, in the system in back in Canada at this point um, was different to an experience that you might have had in the U.S. healthcare system? And, and how do you think they would have compared? It's, it's so hard to say. Mm. You know, um, doctors in Canada and doctors in the United States are under extreme pressure to get patients in and out, right? Yeah. Now, when I lived in the United States, I worked for a very big tech company. And so I had literally the best insurance that money could buy, yeah. literally. And so when I saw a doctor, time was made for me. Oh. When I needed to see a doctor, a doctor was available to me. And even when I had to go and get um, a third-party um, like person. approval or something. Yeah. Even when I had to do that and I had to pay money because I worked at this high tech company, I had the money to pay. So there was a privilege at play there for sure. I was an extreme privilege. Mm. I mean, there, there are, it's a tiny, tiny fraction of Americans mm. that would be able to access the kind of care that I have when I was in the United States. Yeah. Um, so I think what had happened to me in Canada could happen to the average person in the United States very easily. Yeah. Now, maybe not privileged people in the United States, but the average person in the United States, I absolutely believe it could be the case. Yeah. And in Canada, you know, yeah, you're going to run, as I said, many doctors are good, mm -hmm. but you're going to run into bad ones. And in my opinion, she was just a terrible, terrible doctor. Yeah. Maybe a bad human being. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd go as far to say that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think it's fair for us to judge her here. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> you know, and so in, in that case, um, that was a, a stop, right? That was like yeah. a red stop sign in my life. Mm -hmm. um, but so can it happen there? It can happen there. It can happen here. I think, yeah, it can happen anywhere. Yeah. And also, I mean, I guess some of those roadblocks that you come across, it seems like because we were talking earlier again about um, the Canadian health system being uh, a system that's subsidized by the government. So right. everyone who you have the right to health care if you are living in Canada and a Canadian citizen, right? That's correct. Um, and there is a difference, isn't there, between that and needing to have the best health care that you're paying thousands and thousands of dollars into in the U.S., for example, you know? So, um, you know, while you were able to access care in the U.S. because you had great connections and, and you had the money and the privilege, right? Um, in Canada, no matter who you are, you might still come across that bad doctor and still have to circumvent them, it sounds like, just because that's how the system works, but there are ways to do it. There are ways to do it for sure. Um, I think 
anytime someone puts up a roadblock medically, mm. there's always a way to go, to go around it, even when they tell you there isn't, mm. right? That woman, that doctor, she was the gatekeeper. Yeah. She was the one who said, no, you're not doing this, period, end of story, leave my life. Yeah. So she was the know, Cerberus of the situation, wasn't she? So, but, but I did work around her and, and I do believe you can do it. Yeah. Um, but they'll tell you that you can't. Sure. So you can't listen. Also, because they don't want to have to deal with extra paperwork or deal with their egos being damaged, perhaps. Exactly. Right. So um, you're an advocate. Your work has made you an advocate, right? Your experience has made you an advocate. Can you tell us about your advocacy work? We know you've written a book, um, but tell us about all the work that you're doing uh, to raise awareness of bipolar. So I think um, my biggest role in bipolar advocacy is to speak the truth. So in, um, when we hear about bipolar disorder, we tend to hear one of two things. Either bipolar disorder is so bad that you will, your life will end, you'll end up under a bridge, mm. or bipolar is just another mental illness and you can live a happy life. Mm. Those are the two things that you hear about mental illness. And that neither one of them are particularly true. Now, some people are going to fall into category A and some people are going to fall into category B, mm. but the vast majority of people are going to end up somewhere in between, you know? And so my job is to bring, is to show reality. It's mm. to show the spectrum of things that happen. So I don't want to ignore the person who ends up homeless. I don't mm. want to ignore that person. Glossy campaigns do. Right. But I don't want to, you know, and I don't want to ignore my own story, which is that of constant struggle and strife. I don't want to ignore that. And not just personal struggle, but struggle with the system. Right. You know, there's a, there's a whole series of things to struggle with. And Mm. I don't want to say it's again, a glossy photo of this person who's just happy and they went on to get a degree and now they're whatever. Yeah. See, because it's not that simple or straightforward for anyone, I think. That's right. It isn't. So my job is just to be in the middle and to be brutally honest. Yeah. Um, because that is what people don't do. Mm. That is what they don't want to do. And that's what people don't want to hear too, yeah. which is why they need to hear it. Yeah. And it seems like people really turn to you because they know that you're going to speak truth to a lot of the bullshit that's out there about, about bipolar disorder and, and these kinds of spectrum disorders with men- mental health issues, you know, like, we need more people like you who are standing up and saying, well, most people are in the middle or what about the people who are dying, you know, and not a lot of people are saying that, as you say, particularly in these glossy campaigns, right? That's absolutely true. There's just, it's very hard to stand up and say, look at all my flaws. Mm. Like that's a really tough thing to do. And quite frankly, I don't blame like say super famous people for not wanting to do that. Yeah. But it is an important thing. It is important to stand up and say, look at my flaws because that's actually what makes you human. And that's what makes everybody human. Mm. You know, I, people really, um, align with what I say because they have that experience that I have. I'm just like them. There's nothing special about me. The only difference. I think you're pretty special. Oh, thank you. <laughs> the only difference is that I say it out loud. Yeah. You know, and what people say to me all the time is you reached inside my brain. Mm. People say this to me all the time. And, um, and I always say yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you're welcome. <laughs> That's my special skill. Um, you know, but that is, we are all having these thoughts, mm-hmm. um, and these feelings 
And we always think that it's just us. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things that I tell people um, when people are first dealing with a serious mental illness is they tend to think they're the craziest person in the room. Yeah. They always think and that. And it's right? always an inner dialogue, isn't it's it? It's always an inner dialogue going, I'm crazy. I'm crazy. You know, it's everyone my fault. Yeah. And everyone else is, doesn't understand because nobody else has this experience. Yeah. I'm the only one, right? right? When of course they are not the only one. Which by the way is also not, it's not an ego thing at that it's, point. It's either. not, no, it's not an ego thing at all. <laughs> In case anyone's wondering. <laughs> no, definitely not an ego thing. Mm. But it's one of those things where, um, it's just, you need someone to say to you and hold your hand and go, yeah, I know. I've kind of done that too. Or, yeah. oh, you mean you've been two months without showering? Yeah, I've done that too. Mm-hmm. Oh, you haven't changed your sheets, you know? I, yeah, I've done that too. And, yeah. and just whatever it is that's going on, you know, there's, there's just a whole whack of people that have done that too. Mm-hmm. It's just that you don't know it initially. And so you need to see those other people virtually or otherwise and just say, yeah. Those, those are my people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, we were all saying that yesterday when all of the winners for the We Go Health Awards got together. We were like, oh, look, it's our people at the conference. <laughs> it's all our invisible illness buddies, you know, or all exactly. our chronic illness buddies. Yeah. So, um, do you have any tips, uh, like a top three list for someone who suspects they might have something off? Like maybe it's the onset of some negative thinking or, um, someone who's further along the process and is having a dip with their medication, what would you offer as advice to people who are living experiences that you've lived yourself? The first, uh, the first tip that's incredibly important is to see someone that you trust for a thorough and medical evaluation of whatever you're experiencing. Yep. That may or may not lead to what you're looking for, mm-hmm. but it's absolutely the first step. Yeah. If you sit alone in your head and you're trying to self-diagnose, you will be wrong. Mm. And even if you were, let's say, right, you would have no way to help yourself. You know, being right about something doesn't help you. What helps you is a treatment plan and it's a professional who's going to be able to get you that treatment plan. Yeah. So you absolutely need to see someone. And if you happen to be unlucky, like I have been unlucky from time to time, you get yourself a referral and you go to doctor number two and you say, you need to listen to me. This is what we're doing. And Where did you learn to do that? This is what I want to know is, is how did Natasha figure out that you had to show up and, and sort of be the squeaky wheel? How did you figure that out? Well, I think the trial and error. <laughs> yeah. Trial and error. I think there's, I think, um, it's a choice mm. that you make that you want to live or you want to die because if you want to live, then you have to take control and take responsibility for your life and say, this is what I need to do. Let's go get this done. Mm. And that's what it is. It's live or die, mm-hmm. right? I decided not to die. Yeah. So in order to make that happen, I had to stand in front of these guys and start saying, listen to me. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So I interrupted you. You were doing tips. (laughs) Right. So that's the first tip is see someone you trust. And when I say a doctor, I also mean a therapist. Mm. So a therapist is um, also capable, if they're a psychologist, of doing a thorough evaluation for you and seeing what they see. Mm. Um, And 
what we do know is that if you do have a mental illness, seeing those two types of help in conjunction actually leads to better outcomes than seeing either one independently. So please understand that. Yeah. And, and seek that if you're only being offered one kind, seek both. Exactly. That's important. Yeah. The second thing is education. Mm-hmm. Now I've spent you know, a couple decades on education. Yeah. Um, and I continually, every single day, literally read about bipolar disorder. I read about new studies. I, in fact, I'm authoring a paper that I'm trying to get published in a scientific journal. How exciting. Um, yeah. So this is number two, actually. Wow. I've already done one. So, wow. um, well, so we'll have to link to that first one on the episode page as well. <laughs> we will, absolutely. Um, you know, so I've spent all this time really upping what I understand about the illness and also keeping abreast of exactly what's happening today. Right. Now, not everyone can do that, but what everyone can do is they can go to a site that breaks down the information in a way that makes sense to them. Oh, you mean like your website? I mean my <laughs> website. Um, I, my website is great. I love it. And but where, where would listeners go and find your website if they needed to? That would be natashatracy.com. Excellent. And we'll, of course, link to all of this on the website page, too, and we'll be tagging Natasha on our social feed. But go on, please. Thank you. <laughs> um, but other websites that cover um, more... Uh, so my information is not necessarily going to be organized in a fashion that's going to help you the most. So right. let's say you want to learn about mixed episodes. Let's just say that's what you need to know. So um, a website that might give you that information would be a website like Healthy Place or a website like the Mayo Clinic. Mm. Those type of sites are going to give you quality information in, in a way you can digest. Okay. Um, and they'll be able to give you information... Um, that that's quality information. And just as a bit of disclosure, I write for Healthy Place. <laughs> so um, when I say it's quality information, I mean, I wrote it. Um, I, but also that you know the people who work there and you know that the quality of the writing and the information there is, is of a certain standard. Well, what I can say is that a medical doctor reviews everything that we write. Mm. So it's not just that I wrote it, but that a medical doctor actually has reviewed it. Yeah. And obviously at the Mayo Clinic, you're going to have the same thing. Mm. So that's the reason why those two sites come to mind for me. Yeah. And if you happen to be a more research-minded individual, um, then Medscape is really mm. good. That's um, great. Now, that particular... Um, resource is a resource written for doctors by doctors. Right. So that's not necessarily going to be your first stop. Sure. Um, particularly unless you're a doctor and unless you think that way. Yeah, exactly. Unless you think that way and then go right ahead. Um, but it's, it is quality information that is all referenced um, by study. Mm. So um, anything that you need to know, you can look up and it's, it's, it's incredible. And I actually use it all the time. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. So we've got uh, find a good doctor and make sure you get seen. We've got find good resources, you know, and websites. Do you have a third tip for anyone listening? Uh, yeah, actually, those are the really the, the big two, two that I talk about. But, and you know, the third one might be to find your community. Mm. Because even if, um, let's say you're, you rationally understand that 1% of the population has bipolar type one, you rationally understand that you read it somewhere. It makes sense to you. And that bipolar type one, sorry, I keep cutting you off. I want to make sure everyone okay. knows. <laughs> um, but bipolar type one, that's the one that we see on like girl interrupted. And like, that's the really up and down, very manic version of bipolar disorder, correct? Right. So bipolar disorder, um, 
bipolar disorder type one has manic episodes and depressive episodes primarily. Mm. And a manic episode is going to be in a very extreme high, like you said. And bipolar two has hypomanic episodes and depressive episodes. So the depressive episodes are actually the same, but the hypomanic episodes are less severe mm. than the manic episodes. And so that's actually what differentiates bipolar one and two is the severity of that, of that higher episode. Mm. So my apologies for using terminology. Oh, like no, that. that's what I, I think it's great. And I, I appreciate you using the terminology because I think it's important we understand the terminology. And I think it's important that people are hearing terminology that perhaps they haven't heard before, too. So you're saying find your community. So if you are someone who has bipolar type one or you know about the 1% of people who have that. Yeah, if you do, then I think it's really great for you to reach out however you feel comfortable. Mm. So it might be an online community. It might be finding a blog that you think is really great. It, you know, what talks to you? Do you like to watch videos? You know, is there a YouTuber that has bipolar one that you can watch their videos and say, oh my goodness, I've had so many of those experiences. Um, And then of course there are always books. Books are great, but there's, there's a whole spectrum there's a there's a ton of ways to find people just like you mm-hmm. and it's actually really critical that you do at least some of this yeah. because you will feel less alone and that's going to help you fight the disease do you think in a way that we're also this is sort of the best time to be sick because we have the internet you know and we have communities at our fingertips if if we want to reach out to people who are like us I think it's the best time to be sick because we do have access to people for sure. Also, we have access to better treatments than we ever had before. You know, even 20 years ago when I was diagnosed, um, we had maybe half the number of treatments that we actually do today. So it is the best time to be bipolar. (laughs) I mean, yes, I say that with like a, (laughs) take it with a grain of salt, guys. It's never great, you know, but what is great is finding your way through it. And that's Absolutely. what we're here to celebrate. So the last top three list that I like to cover on the show, top three things that you're, they give you unbridled joy. You're unwilling to compromise on no matter the lifestyle changes that you've made to accommodate the symptoms of your illness. What are your top three? It could be guilty pleasures. It could be comfort activities, secret indulgences. What are your top three favorite things that you turn to maybe when you're having an episode or feeling a little down? What do you do to feel better? So, I, so my top three, that, the top three that come to mind, the first one is ice cream. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, insanely addicted to it. I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, <laughs> uh, you need to tell me it's delicious. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Ben and Jerry live in my freezer. So I very much, you know, I, that's for whatever reason that just like touches my soul. Ice cream. Yeah. I love the stuff. Um, the second one is my friends, my people, right? My IRL people. They're wonderful and amazing. And I love going out to brunch. This is like a thing that also feeds my soul. It's, it's one of my favorite things to do. And in fact, I have a friend that we go to brunch or, or breakfast every single weekend, right? Oh, that's so nice. And so for me, that's like, it's like a connection tangible with the world that is just critical to me. And it's regular. So it's something that you guys have set up where there's a structure about it. So it gives you something to look forward to every week too. Absolutely. And I actually think that's really critical. Mm. And the third, um, orgasms. <laughs> I love it. You're the first person who said that on the show and I bow down. <laughs> Even yeah, no our, our sound engineer over okay. here is having a little dance. 
I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> I, they are, you know, um, I think underrated. Um, Extremely, especially for women. <laughs> it's, it's really funny because like I'll have an orgasm and then I'll think to myself, why do I ever do anything else? <laughs> <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> but the, what the, one of the reasons that's important is because so much medication actually impacts that your ability to have an orgasm. Yeah. That, that, the, that, that if you feel that orgasms are really important to you, which I do. Yeah. Um, I literally will not take a medication that will destroy that for me. Yeah. Because that is one of my top three. You can't take away one of my top three. I won't let you. Good for you. That's an empowered woman right there. I really appreciate it. Natasha, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners before we let you go and we, you know, walk back into the the wide world of the conference? Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Um, Such a pleasure. You're, you know, you, you have some... I think you had some really great questions and we had a really good conversation and it's been a pleasure meeting you and the other winners at this conference. Um, and yeah, and I guess I want to say something to everyone who's listening who has a mental illness or who knows someone who has a mental illness. And that is something that I said last night, which is, I see you. You matter. Your illness matters. Your pain matters. You are not screaming into the void. You are not alone. I am holding your hand. See it or not. That's really beautiful. I think that's a perfect place to end for today. And remind listeners where they can find you and your work. So you can find me at natashatracy.com and there'll be links there to all of the places where I exist, which is <laughs> everywhere. Yes. <Yeah. laughs> so you can join Natasha's community and uh, really find out more about mental illness and really find home if you need to. Natasha, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show today, and I'm thrilled we got to do this here at Health. Thank you. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.